tempted to go over there, but I was told not to do that. So. <laughs> I listened to my brother. What a blessing to be here. Sherry and I have desired to be here for a long time. We've been praying for you all the time at Dominion Covenant Church. Uh, we saw pictures of this, but now I, get to, now I don't have to imagine it. I can see how greatly God has blessed you and how he's working in you. And, and he's uh, glorifying his name through you. It's, it's such a joy to be here. And uh, <clears throat> I would like to share from the scriptures. This is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. So if you'd turn to that. And this is the living, almighty word of God. And so if you'd rise, please. Hear the word of God. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We praise you that we can know that we are your people and that this is your word that you have given to us to strengthen us, to turn us to you. Lord, we love your word and we praise you for our salvation in the Lord Jesus that now we can understand and grasp it by the power of your Holy Spirit and we do ask for the leading of your spirit Help us to understand, Lord, and then help us, we pray, to apply your precious word, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Please be seated. Recently at Dominion, coming to church in Omaha, by the way, I invite you all to come there, so consider yourself invited. Uh, I know it's not exactly close. Uh, it took us a long time to get here, uh, but it was a beautiful drive. So you're all welcome. Now, recently at Dominion, uh, I was uh, sharing from Matthew chapter 6. And in that passage, uh, we were talking about worry. And of course, we were, it was, we were calling it a sin, which it is. And it's, we were talking about its destructiveness to our mind and its destructiveness to our body. It's destructive no matter how you look at it. And contentment, I believe, is very related uh, to this in that I believe contentment is the opposite of a heart of worry, if you think about it that way. It's what less and less worry, I think, looks like in a person, in a person's life. It's what a mind at peace is like, I believe, and a mind and a heart diligently seeking after the living God. So this is all about contentment today, or the destructiveness of discontentment. And I'd like to share a few um, uh, definitions of this. First of all, from the Oxford Dictionary, it's really brief, but contentment, it says, is a state of happiness and satisfaction. Happiness and satisfaction. Satisfaction is a key word because uh, in the Greek, uh, that word for satisfaction is sometimes uh, rendered uh, contentment. In the Webster 1828 Dictionary, which if you're good homeschoolers, you have one of those in your home, uh, it, it is called a resting or satisfaction of mind without disquiet. So it adds a little to that, rightly so. It's a resting or a satisfaction of mind without disquiet, without any disquiet. 
And then William Barclay, in his commentary, he said, contentment comes from, well, two things he said. Uh, knowing God, certainly, there is no contentment outside of the living God. So, first of all, knowing God and delighting in his sovereign goodness and his fatherly care. And we'll see through this sermon that understanding his sovereign care for us, his fatherly care is the key to understanding what is contentment. So, knowing God and delighting in his sovereign goodness and fatherly care. But I like the definition of the Puritans, even though they're generally longer. And so I will be sharing a number of times, more than I usually do, uh, quotes from some Puritans that I have come to love. First of all, Thomas Watson. He wrote a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. And he defined contentment this way. He called it a sweet temper. Now, I think the term would probably be temperament in our day. So let's say a sweet temperament of spirit, whereby a Christian carries himself in an equal poise in every condition. Equal poise. No matter what happens. And we'll see from Paul especially what that means. So there's a balance uh, and a contentment in all situations. And then in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs uh, defined Christian contentment as, um, and that's in your notes there if you have those, that sweet inward, so they both use the word sweet, that sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Same thing, every condition, every situation. You can't say you're content if you're only content in these situations. So contentment, dear family, is a state of heart shown by the acceptance of God's providences in our lives as from a sovereign and loving Heavenly Father. And in other words, a contented person uh, really has no doubts, or at least lingering ones, of God's sovereignty in their life. And of his loving and perfect providence in their life. Those go together. John Flavel said, God's sovereignty is gloriously displayed in his eternal decrees and his temporal providences. In both. And praise God, we see them in his temporal providences. If our eyes open to that. And I'd like to remind us from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is question and answer number 11, regarding contentment. And, and it says, God's works of providence, and providence, I'm sorry, are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So it's good for us to be reminded of that word, providence. We use it in our circles. Uh, it's good for us to be, to be reminded of the meaning of that and to praise God for his providence. And uh, so this sermon is basically about the blessings and the riches of contentment and of the evil and the destructiveness of covetousness and discontentment. So verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. And I'd like to back up just a little bit here, read verses 3 through 5 of First uh, Timothy 6 to give a little context here. But the context was that Paul was warning Timothy against proud people, self-seeking leaders who uh, were seeing godliness as a means of gain. They're wanting to gain personally from their position. So in verse 3 it says, If anyone teaches otherwise, remember he's speaking to Timothy, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling evil suspicions, useless 
wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So these are men to avoid. This is a characteristic to avoid. Paul is warning Timothy to not hang around these so-called leaders who were seeking to profit from their ability to dispute. I guess they were great at debate, maybe. They could argue well. They could do that well. Uh, and they thought they could use that skill, I guess, to, as a means of godliness, as a means of gain, at least uh, the, as a form, in the, a form of godliness. Matthew Henry said, Godliness is itself great gain. It is profitable in all things. And wherever there is true godliness, there will be contentment. So they will, they will be going together and growing together. So godliness with a contented heart is worth a lot, dear family. That's what it's saying here. And there is great gain in it. In the proper kind of gain, of course, the God-honoring kind of gain. True riches, in other words. So godliness combined with an inner contentment, which is rooted in the sufficiency of Christ to provide all that we need in any situation, according to the riches of his glory, surpasses anything, anything that the world can provide, anything that it can offer in terms of contentment. There is great blessing and riches in the contented heart of a person growing in godliness. Now, 1 Timothy 4, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul exhorts <clears throat> Timothy uh, to train himself, train himself or exercise himself in godliness. So it's a work, it's, a, it's something we're always doing. It's a kind of exercise. And he said, for bodily exercise profits a little. You can ask your pastor about how good exercise is for your body. But it profits you a little. It is good. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But godliness is profitable for all things, it says. In other words, in all ways and at all times. Having, it says, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. So that kind of exercise toward godliness is profitable in every way. Exercise toward godliness. Psalm 37, uh, in that psalm, verse 16, David said, A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. So the little that the righteous have is much more valuable is much greater gain than the worldly riches of many wicked. So, brothers and sisters, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Thomas Watson, in The Art of Divine Contentment, wrote, If there is a blessed life before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. He equated them very strongly. If there is a blessed life now, in other words, he's saying, a blessed life before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. I believe that's true. Psalm 73, Asaph, the psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? He's praying. And he said, There is none, or some versions say, There is nothing, there is no one on earth that I desire besides you. In comparison with you, there is nothing. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is my portion. So he sounded content, didn't he? When he prayed that way. Like his heart was not primarily seeking things or power or acclaim, any of those things that some people think you must have to have a contented heart. But he was satisfied that no matter what, the Lord was his portion. In other words, his lot, his all. He could be content 
J.I. Packer said there's a difference. This is an interesting quote. Uh, J.I. Packer said there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Certainly that's a true statement. Everybody here would say yes, but but this is how he uh, filled that out a little bit. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, he said you have three things. I, I just thought it was interesting the three things he chose here. You have three things. When you, when you truly know God, you're communing with him, you're delighting in him. You have energy to serve him, first of all. You have boldness to share him. And then lastly, he said, and contentment in him. Contentment in him. King David's example of contentment, I'd like to just share a little bit. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, he said, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. So he was content in the great shepherd, to walk with the great shepherd, to follow the great shepherd, uh, and that he would provide. And then it says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. In other words, there's plenty to feed on and nourish. He would never lack what he needs. It's what we experience at the table of the Lord, I believe, as we taste and drink, and as he nourishes us, and as he satisfies us, and we become satisfied in him, as we're reminded of the cost of our salvation. And then David said, he leads me beside the still waters. So in other words, he satisfies my thirst for righteousness. And then he restores my soul. So he was saying, when I am needy, he satisfies my soul. And only he can do so in a deep way. So following our shepherd, dear family, is the path of contentment. And I guess I could ask a question here. Are you following hard after your shepherd? After the shepherd of your souls, the one who loves you, the one who died for you, gave his life for you? Are you seeking him who is the one who gives contentment? And so then you will not be fearful. You will not be despondent. Uh, that you don't have, first of all, what the world has and says that you really need to be content. And that will always be what we face in this culture. Or, or what the evil one wants you to long for. He wants you to be satisfied in many other things. Certainly not the Lord Jesus. Or what your own sinful heart wants to have. It's the battle we face. In the rare jewel of Christian contentment, or, uh, Christian contentment, Burroughs said, In the strict sense, contentment is only attributed to God, who is God all-sufficient. So we look to him, he is, he is sufficient in and of himself. That's called the aseity of God. In that, he rests fully satisfied in and with himself alone. But, praise God, he is pleased to freely communicate to us his fullness, so that from him we receive grace upon grace. We begin to understand in this life what godly contentment is. And he is the source of it. Certainly he is the source of our contentment. A contented heart, I believe, comes from being conformed to him who freely gives us all things. He's continually giving to us. And that occurs by being with him and by being, drawing near to him, as we are commanded to do, and praise God, as we are able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to draw near to the living God. By seeking him, hungering and thirsting for him, and then being satisfied in him. In Psalm 34, David said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed, or you could translate that happy or contented, is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. There is no lack. There is no insufficiency. There is no discontent of heart. So contentment is relying on the goodness of the Lord to satisfy us. It is the man who trusts in the Lord and his providence who is blessed with contentment. And those who fear the Lord uh, do not want or uh, they don't have the discontentment of always wanting more, a lifestyle like that. Unless, I would say, if you're going to be discontented at all, it's a holy discontent of longing for the Lord Jesus, to know him, that that would be the hunger and desire of your heart. So you'd never be uh, satisfied fully that you'd always be thirsty, you'd always be hungry for him. And one of the key passages on contentment is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Also Hebrews 13, 5, which I'll mention a little later. But those three uh, are very key if you want to understand contentment. Philippians 4, Paul said, Not that I speak in regard to need, so at that point he wasn't uh, asking them specifically. They had already given and were continuing. The Philippians were very giving. But he said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, Remember we talked about the balance earlier. Whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer, to suffer need. And then he said, and you all know this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul learned to be content. So when he had a little, when he was abased, in other words, when he was humbled, brought low, uh, when he was hungry, probably, uh, he could be content. The Lord taught him to be content. And when he was full, when he abounded, he had plenty. His heart was not drawn to things in that state. In other words, his possessions did not possess him. May it be so among us. And I think this is what Paul meant in, uh, that in 2 Corinthians 6. There's a long list of uh, what he had gone through for the sake of the gospel. That he, in his ministry, had endured. And it ends this way. It says, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things, he said. He had very little in in terms of what the world says you should have at that point. So the world said he had nothing. They looked on it that way. But he knew the riches of contentment. He possessed all things, he said. So his contentment was in the Lord Jesus, who strengthened him when in need, even in prison, I believe, certainly, uh, to not covet, even in that situation. And the Lord strengthened him when in plenty, so that he wouldn't be content in things. And Paul said he learned to be content. And dear brothers and sisters, we will always need to be learning to be content. We can ask him to teach us that, to be satisfied in him and what he sovereignly brings into our lives. In other words, dear people, we are in his training program. And one of the ways he wants to train us is that we will have contented hearts, blessed hearts, resting in him. A life of discontentment, really for a Christian, should be an oxymoron. Sherry and I just came from the uh, uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. is a, a big conference. We just came from that. And there was a speaker there named Susan Heck. And uh, she wrote an article maybe several years ago. And it was on contentment. And I'd like to share just one little part that she, where she talked about the if-onlys. 
And you'll understand what I mean as I read these. So she counseled many people who were in deep discontentment. These are believers. And, and uh, in the end, she thought, well, all of them are saying something kind of familiar. And it was, if only. Okay? If only I had a good marriage, I would be content. If only I was married, for example, I would be content. If only I had a, a newer, a bigger house, I would be content. If only I had more friends, I would be content. If only my life wasn't so busy or maybe hard, I could be content. If only I didn't have this physical problem, I would be content. If only I had more money, it goes on and on. I would be content. So I'll be content someday when these things I have achieved. Now, the people of Israel are an example to us, uh, a bad example maybe. Numbers 14, it says, All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, those, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. And if only we had died in this wilderness. Now they had other if-onlys. If only we had the leeks and the onions, all those things. If only we could go back into bondage. If you can imagine saying that. We may not be aware, dear family, of our, these kind of things, our wishes. You know, they're kind of deep. And that's one reason I was sharing this at Dominion because I talked to many people and all of the young men, and they're somewhat not aware. I think they're hungry to grow in the Lord. Um, but we're not aware of these, and it might be helpful, I believe, if you want to make an application to take some time and consider some of these what-ifs in your life, or if-onlys, to be content. And I've, even since this sermon that I gave some months ago, I've talked to many people who said, oh, I don't really think I'm discontent. And I'll say, well, what about this? Oh, yeah, I guess I am. You know, they, they just weren't aware. And praise God, you are in a body that cares that you are growing in contentment. Praise God. You can talk to each other in love, of course, and encourage each other in this area. And we must, because you're not going to hear it from the world. They have no clue what contentment is. They probably don't even believe that it's possible. So ask the Lord to help you identify these. Uh, they are very unhealthy to keep to harbor, even if you're not aware of those, because they cause us, in the end, to question God's goodness and his faithfulness and his providence. And they may cause us to take our eyes off of the one who is the source of contentment. I think a contented person is more likely to ask something like this, Lord, what do you want to do in my life through this situation, through this circumstance that you have allowed me to be in? What do you want to do in me? Another perspective on contentment, verse 7, says, We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I believe the Apostle Paul was thinking of uh, Job here, Job uh, chapter 1, verse 21. says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then later on in Job chapter 1, verse 22, he says, uh, the, the author says, In this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Now think about that last part of that. He was pointed out, it was pointed out that Job didn't sin against God. In other words, he didn't charge God with wrong. Think about charging God with wrong. There's a brother, one of our brothers at church, I was sharing from Job, actually, and he said, ah, oh, I have a verse hanging on my wall, and here it is. Or, or, it wasn't a verse, it was a quote by Matthew Henry. 
And Matthew Henry said, in all this, Job did not act amiss. He didn't sin, for he did not attribute folly to God. May it not be so. How could we do that? We'd, no one here would verbally do that. In our heart, we may. may. May the Lord keep us from it. But he said, for he did not attribute folly to God, nor in the least reflect upon his, that is God's wisdom, in what he had done. Remember who this is. This is Job. Discontent and impatience do, in effect, charge God with folly. May it not be so. It's a grievous thing. I believe Job could have relied on his wealth earlier on, but he learned, like Paul. Paul said he learned that the sovereign God gives much to some people sometimes, and he takes away from some people at some time. But a contented heart has the poise, remember that word that Watson used, has the poise, in other words, the contentedness that gives a peace that keeps a person steady, in any case, no matter what is happening. And we need to have a right perspective, dear family, an eternal one, in fact, on all the things that God gives us and brings into our lives, and that we are stewards to use all that he has given for his glory, even the situations that we really don't understand, and to offer ourselves for his work in the extension of his kingdom, which I believe is carried out by contented people. Matthew 6.33, you know this verse, it's a key verse on priorities, I believe, an eternal perspective on needs and things. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, shall be yours as well. They should not become your priorities. They should not be the source of your contentment. Seek God and, and his kingdom. And those do not change. So the priority is, is to seek him, to seek him who is your portion, and then you won't be ruined. By the way, discontent can ruin a person. You won't be ruined. You won't be full of discontent by a false hope in things or position or power or worldly riches or acceptance, whatever it may be, whatever you feel you lack that could lead to a temptation to discontentment. Our Lord Jesus spoke a parable of the rich man. This is in Luke 12. And he said, uh, the, the rich man said, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So he had a lot of stuff. And he was tempted to make it his security, his hope, really, to be satisfied with that alone. He was content with a bunch of stuff, which is a false security. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be, all those things that he had amassed, which you have provided, which you have stored up? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So a rich man can be just as discontent in his heart as a poor man. True richness can be measured, I believe, by a contented heart. A heart that is at peace, a heart that is at rest, because the Lord Jesus is the sufficiency. How could he not be content? He's growing in his love for the Lord Jesus. Now, earlier, Jesus had said in the same chapter, Luke 12, he said, take heed. In other words, be very careful. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's the opposite of what the world thinks. Take heed, beware of it, be alert 
As I mentioned earlier, be alert. Ask the Lord to make you alert in your heart. Ask the Spirit to make you aware of uh, any covetousness. Because your life does not equal what you have or what you possess or what people think you are, maybe. And, and our hearts are so deceptive in this that we can easily begin to covet. It is very easy. And begin to think the, the what-ifs or the if-onlys. You know, if I only had more of something. And the Lord commanded, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first, again, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He does not want those things to grasp your heart. Verse 8 says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. If you notice, there's only two things in that list. Food or nourishment and clothing. I guess I would add shelter as a basic. You know, these are things, obvious, legitimate needs that you have to exist on the earth, to live physically. These are needed possessions, if you will. And in America, what would you think? If you went out on the street and asked, what do you think are basic needs? How would the, would the list be only two? I don't think so. I think you would be there a long time, possibly. Internet, I suppose. You know, and any number of things. It would be much larger. Uh, but really, it's the yearning uh, or the focus of your heart for more things, for example, that causes discontent. Our culture is not into being thankful for the basics, right? Modern advertising is ubiquitous. It is their job to make you discontent. And they are very skilled at enticing desire. And I did bring a handout that uh, our senior pastor, Phil Kaiser, uh, developed 20 years ago, I think. And uh, pastor has them somewhere. But uh, this is on developing sales resistance. And, uh, oh, it's on there. Thank you. Okay. It was stapled on. I should have known. Uh, okay. So you have those. It would be an interesting exercise to go through those. Because, again, if you're not aware, uh, our culture is very good at enticing you know, your thoughts or your desires. It just, you know, we're, again, like the frog in the boiling water, unless we're aware of it. So we have to be aware of what our culture is always doing. They're always presenting to us. And we have to be alert, especially if you're in terms of the media um, or very discontented people around you uh, who could enforce, uh, reinforce, in other words, negativity and discontent in your own life. May we be kept from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So something refreshing to me I'd like to share, and it's, always, it's been a good reminder to me over the years, is I like to hear when uh, young children pray. And they can barely speak, especially them, really. And, uh, you know, what they list, if, you know, if I ask them, well, what are you thankful for? Uh, and I believe, as we were raising our children, uh, there are a lot of things I didn't do right or a timely way. But one thing I did do consistently was we prayed every night with the kids when they went to bed and I'd go to their bed and I would, almost always they knew I was going to ask, what are you thankful for today? And I, I can't remember them all. I wish I had written them down. Some were really unique, you know. And uh, they'd say like, I'd say, what are you thankful for? Uh, grapes or, you know, something like that. Well, how many times in my life have I thanked God for that? Or they'd say Water. And I asked my, uh, now I'm asking my grandson. So I asked my grandson, Jethro, not too long ago. I said, well, what are you thankful for? And he thought for a minute, and he said, bugs. I'm thankful for bugs. And I, I can tell you, I have not thanked the Lord for bugs. You know, am I, am I contented that, you know, mosquitoes are still out there? You know, 
but it was a good reminder to me uh, through my little ones uh, of you know how I still need a lot to I have a lot to grow there's a lot of growing to do in my life I needed the reminder that they gave to me and uh, things that I take for granted we take so many things for granted but a more thankful spirit for these basics um, leads to a contented heart and may we pray this way this is like Agur in Proverbs 30 he prayed this way to the Lord give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food allotted to me in other words given to me by your grace lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God dishonor the living God he didn't want to do that so discontent again in the rich or the poor displeases the Lord and the rich may say you know I don't need the Lord or maybe not say it physically but they'll think it and the poor may try to meet needs by stealing or doing something that will dishonor the Lord. In other words, both of them are trying to satisfy themselves and not looking to the source of contentment. Hebrews 13.5, which I mentioned earlier, says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. It's a clear command. And then it says, Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's connected it with an amazing promise. Such things as you have, it says here. Such things that the Lord has given you now. Praise God, he daily loads us with benefits, it says in the psalm. And that promise, this promise here, should be one of the foundations of our contentment. That he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thomas Watson said again, God's providence, which is nothing but the fulfillment of his decree, should be a guarantee and an opposing force against discontentment. In his wisdom, God has set us in our current station, or we would say our current situation. And Watson also said, and I'll go a little bit farther through what he's quoted, he said, the wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees it better for us to abound, we will abound. If he sees it better for us to want, we will want. Be content. To be at God's disposal, is how he phrased it. Be content. That's by looking to him again. You cannot be discontent, he said, without quarreling with God. This is similar to what I think Matthew Henry said earlier. Uh, let me read that again. You cannot be discontent without quarreling against God. Is that a wise thing to do? Matthew Henry said, you know, he used the phrase, charging God with folly. How could we do such a thing to an almighty, holy, sovereign, loving God, our creator? Well, we do, because we're sinful. But may it be less and less. It's a grievous thing to the Holy Spirit. And he went on, he said, Contentment is a work of the Spirit, and it's shown by a quiet and inner peace, similar to those two uh, definitions earlier. There's a quiet and an inner peace. You know people like this. Quiet, they have... You know, no matter what, they don't seem to be shaken. So, two things, though. It's shown by an inner quiet and peace and an outward submission to and even delight in God's sovereign provision. There are two parts to it. Certainly there's an inner one, but there's also an outer one. Submission to and even delight in God's sovereign provision. I believe how we pray, how we give thanks is an indication of that anyway. 
Matthew Henry talks about the folly of placing our happiness in things when we did not bring anything into the world, he says, and we can carry nothing out. So let's look at the opposite now. This part won't be as long, so don't worry uh, that this is going to be a really long sermon. Uh, so the, the other verses now I'm just going to talk about uh, the opposite of contentment. In other words, destructiveness. The destructiveness, destructiveness and the evil of covetousness. So verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. This is a downward spiral here. So those who desire to be rich here in First Timothy were men, the men I mentioned earlier, they sought to use their, uh, quote, godliness, their position as a means to get rich personally, to gain uh, beyond what they needed for living. Way beyond that, I believe. So there are powerful temptations that can be very destructive in our lives. Temptations to seek contentment by seeking whatever in that list. Riches, having our hearts set on comfort, for example. So these temptations are snares in the path of a believer. The path that we should be walking on with the Lord Jesus. The path that our shepherd is walking on and we should be following him. These are snares, they're diversions. And they trip us up. And they can turn us aside for a brief while uh, for the elect. And really what it does is it causes us to take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus and off of his promises to provide. And they go together. The promises of God, the word of God, and the the living word. And we can see here a kind of downward spiral. So first there's a desire to be rich. So, you know, some contentment gets kind of in there and starts seeking a little more of this or that. And then it says, uh, fall into temptation. In other words, they give in to more of that. They give in to the temptation to, well, let's pursue that then. And then it becomes a snare. And they're actually caught to some degree. They're stuck. They're stuck. And they need help. They, we, need help. we need to help each other in those cases. Certainly in all of these. And then it says uh, they fall into many foolish and harmful lusts. In other words, they, they have been now given, given themselves over. And for the non-elect, uh, they, are, they will drown in destruction and perdition. The state of eternal destruction when unrepentant. And this, going down, this is uh, grievous to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a similar progression in James 1, verses 14 to 15. It says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, first of all, and enticed. And then when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So that is a progression that is easy to fall into. If our desires are not checked by the word of God and the spirit. And again, we have a role in each other's lives in this. Continual discontentment is very dangerous. Let me use that word. And it is at least a sign of the rule of self, rather than the rule of God's word and his promises. So we should be extremely alert, dear family, to desires that remove us from having a contented heart because we are pursuing things. We, uh, at Dominion Covenant Church, we go through the Heidelberg Catechism one year, and a little more in a year, and then we go through the Westminster Confession, and then we just keep alternating that way. So recently, we looked at, we were in the Heidelberg Catechism on the Tenth Commandment, You Shall Not Covet. And this could be a wonderful prayer, so you could look it up later, but I will read it. <clears throat> it says, The Tenth Commandment requires that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments, 
should ever arise in our heart. Rather, we should always hate all sin with all our hearts and delight in all righteousness. And we can always pray that because we're not there yet. We must discipline ourselves, as we heard earlier, uh, to be seeking the Lord, to be seeking his face, to be delighting in him. That's what that means, that you can actually seek the face of God. Because our focus on him, our watching him, will keep us from this downward spiral, from being enticed, from being tripped up. David said in Psalm 25, he said, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. He will, you know, when you're looking down, if you're all stuck down there and trying to yank yourself out of that, you don't know what you're doing. But if your eyes are on the Lord Jesus, he will tell you which way to go. You can get out of that. But otherwise you can't. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So if you start going down any kind of spiral, uh, and we're talking about discontentment here, look to him. Godly disciplines keep us, help keep us from being snared by temptations to trust in riches and wealth and things. And uh, I think maybe you've all studied, I don't know if you've studied the, spiritual, the book on spiritual disciplines by Don Whitney yet, or some of you have heard of it or know of it. It's, it's great to talk about the disciplines that point us to the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul told Timothy later in 1 Timothy 6, he said, command those who are rich. So there were rich people around Timothy. He said, command those people in, in this present age to, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Trust in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, these rich people that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, they have an eternal perspective. But on earth, they are doing certain things. First of all, you know, we are given much, dear family, uh, not to trust in those things because they are uncertain. I mean, do you think the stock market is certain? I doubt it now, anyway. So he's given us these things for mainly two reasons, it says here. To enjoy, so that should cause great thanks, to, praise to him for grapes and bugs, or well, maybe not bugs, but... Uh, and the second thing is to do good with it. We are to do good with everything he gives us. We are stewards, and we're to be rich in good works, it says. To be ready to give and to share what we have for eternal purposes. First John 2 says, we do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love it. It's easy to be attracted to it, to covet it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love God in mammon. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away. It is very uncertain. Those are uncertain riches, and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the lust of the world ensnares us. It trips us up as we're running the Christian life. Hebrews 12 makes that also clear. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And I believe that lack of contentment is one of those. And then it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I, we're supposed to run that race with contented hearts. And so let's run without the, the weight of worry. Let's, let's run. Let's follow the Lord, our shepherd. Because we trust, we don't want to trust in things. But we, 
And we don't want to be unthankful. We don't want to be dis discontent. So the devil and the world and our own selfish desires tempt us to give our lives for things. This is really part of the spiritual battle we are all in until he calls us home. This is spiritual warfare. And we're in it, all of it. The youngest here also. We're in warfare. And it's easy to forget that, I think, again. To love the world. To be lulled into trusting uh, the amount of something, accumulation or abilities uh, or awards or recognition, position, acceptance. So the world is always seeking to draw us to its supposed bounty and comfort and satisfaction for our souls. It won't give up. We are surrounded by enticements to give our lives to, to things which tempt us to think that material wealth will actually answer some problems in our lives. Well, God is the one who orchestrates that. So we have to be careful of the if-onlys, that if we just have enough, we will be satisfied. Well, the final verse in our text says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Matthew Henry said, People may have money and yet not love it, but if they love it inordinately, it will push them on to all evil, which I just shared. It's very easy to get on that downward spiral. And for this love of money, this prioritization of riches and comfort, uh, to be satisfied, it says, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So greediness, which I believe is another indication of a lack of contentment, causes some to stray from the faith and causes increased sorrows. So their hearts have, are set then on things, and they're not trusting the God of kindness and providence and, and his amazing promises. And this certainly leads to many sorrows, like it says here. The picture here is, it says they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. It's like the many arrows have, you know, been uh, shot into them. And so they are weak, obviously, and they are in pain, probably. First Timothy 6.11, in First Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy, But you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, which we're talking about here with contentment, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So we're to flee lust for things and pursue godliness with contentment. If you don't aim at those, that list there in 1 Timothy 6, 11, if you don't aim for those, you will likely not be turning, as you could anyway, from the materialism of our age and from worldly gain as a goal in life, which means you will not know, as you could anyway, the blessed state of contentment. But, I was going to say, somebody's not content, so there. They're leaving. But we should seek, brothers and sisters, after what God calls good. And we should seek for contentment. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above. So we should set our minds on things above. Meditate on Philippians 4.8. Many of you know this verse. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's any excellence, anything praiseworthy, meditate on those things. So when we meditate, what we meditate on, and what we think often of, greatly impacts our state of contentment, I believe, or, or our state of discontentment. So, to summarize, our con contentment is indeed a rare jewel. It is not natural on this earth. You don't meet... Many unbelievers, are, is it possible for unbelievers who, to be peacefully and usually content? Who regularly experience the blessed state of contentment? 
or happiness or thankfulness. So we should be, you should be, I believe you are already being examples to those around you of what a contented life looks like. They have no clue what that means, what that is like, how it is possible. If you look at their lives, you can see what's, that they're not contented. They're, they're driven. So may God use you in the lives of many people here to point them to the source of true contentment who is our Lord Jesus. So a final few thoughts just for application. How, how is this maintained? How is a state of contentment maintained or uh, grown? First of all, prayer and thanksgiving. I already mentioned this. So a, life, a lifestyle of thanksgiving is what I'm talking about. I'm just thankful, you know, once a week or, or some things like that, or on uh, uh, a holiday or something. I'm talking about a lifestyle of thankfulness. It's the discipline and practice of thanksgiving for his providences, meaning, you know, the hard providences, I don't really like that term, but that is a term that is used, or the ones that people would call good or blessed. So God, all of God's work in our lives is good. Okay, secondly, I just mentioned meditation on the promises of God such as the promise earlier, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trusting in the Lord's promised provision. Will we trust? Will we believe that promise? And then giving and serving. Being rich in good works, in other words, keeps us from uh, the temptation to cling to our riches. We are to give joyfully. And then finally, we must seek the giver of all good gifts. We must seek and pursue the Lord Jesus because we can, praise God, by his grace, we can follow him who is our eternal portion. And so may you, dear family, be satisfied and content in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we do pray, as the catechism said, that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of your commandments, would arise in our hearts. And rather, Lord, that we would hate all sin with all our hearts and delight in all righteousness, that we would hate covetousness, but delight in your precious promises and your providences in our life, and that we would glorify you by a growing contentment and a growing love for you, Lord. We desire it. We long for it. Oh, Lord, you are our portion. And we ask that we would be a thankful people. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.